over to the church today. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll be in verse number 17 in just a moment. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 17. I want to uh, begin by uh, reading a quote to you, and I want to see if, if you agree with this quote. But here's a quotation. Each individual has his own living assigned to him by the Lord as sort of a sentry post so that he might not heedlessly wander through life. Each person has his own living assigned to him by the Lord. What do you think about that when you hear that? When you, when you look at your life, uh, where you are, your occupation and your family, would you say that you got there by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? Would you say it was all your own effort? Or would you say that you are where you are because God placed you there? Now we need to think carefully about this passage because Paul's teaching smacks directly against the American ideal of personal autonomy. I, I would say that that's one of the defining characteristics of the West, particularly the United States of America, is I am a free individual. Uh, children are taught you can be anything you want to be. If you want to be a rocket scientist, if you want to be president, if you want to be an NBA basketball player, whatever you want to be, you're free to do that. I remember one time, and this is not even in my notes, it popped in my head while I'm talking, I got to say it. There's a young man, uh, when I was a youth pastor in Hawaii, he wanted to be an NBA basketball player. And he wasn't tall, he couldn't chew gum and walk at the same time, but his dream, I'm going to be an NBA basketball player, and his mom enabled that. Oh yeah, yeah, you can become an NBA basketball player. And I, I looked at him, and um, while well, I didn't say it, but I was thinking to myself, oh, uh, personal delusions remain strong in some people, right? Actually, all of us. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is that that is the way that we are taught. That's the way that we are um, just indoctrinated, for lack of a better term, in our culture. And yet Paul, in the passage that we're getting ready to read, three times says this, Remain where you are called. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, let's stand as we read God's word and then we'll dive into this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. There it is again, the second time. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free 
when, when called, is a bondservant of Christ. And let me stop there. I'm going to say a little bit more about this. That word bondservant is the word slave. That's all the doulos. That word means slave and slave only. Verse number 23, but you were bought with a price. Do not become a slave of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Lord, my heart is overflowing with the, uh, the study of your word and the, the eternal truths that we learn from your word. And I pray that as I preach today that I will accurately reflect what you have had written down in your word and that our hearts will be ready to receive that word in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You can sit down. I'm just going to jump right into it. The first thing that we see about this passage in verse number 20 or verse number 17 is Paul says that you are called. You are called. Scripture uses the word call in two different ways. Many times when Paul uses the word call, he's speaking of the call to salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a saving call in our lives. God summons us to faith in Christ by the gospel. And the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts to enable us to answer that call and to run to Jesus. And he made us new so that we received an entirely new identity. Now that is one of the main ways that Paul uses the word call. But in the passage that we just read today, in verse number 17 and verse number 20, in verse number uh, 24, uh, the word call is being used in a different way. Here, it doesn't refer to God's renewing and transforming call of the gospel, but rather it refers to our unique and particular vocations in life. You see that in verse number 17. Look at verse number 17 with me. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. We've been called by God to an assignment in life, a, a lot in life, um, as husbands or wives, as fathers and mothers, as uh, children and siblings. Kids, kids, listen to me. God called you to have that wonderful older brother that picks on you. And boys, God has called you to have that wonderful younger sister who tattles on you all the time. God called for them to be in your family, to transform you, to make you more like Jesus Christ. You may not see it now, but one day you will, and you'll go back to your sister and say, thank you so much for tattling on me all those 150,000 times. So... As God has called us, we have a lot in life, as doctors and teachers and lawyers and homemakers and carpenters and shopkeepers, and I could go on and on and on, God has given us in his providence a calling in life, a lot in life, a, a vocation. And our dissatisfaction, our discontentment with our lives, very often results when we confuse the two callings. Let me explain what I mean. 
when we root our identity in the vocational call of God that is focused horizontally on the web of human relationships and earthly responsibilities that he has given us. When we look there for our identity, we are placing a burden on our jobs and on our marriages and on our daily duties that they were never meant to bear. Your wife, her purpose is not to make you happy and content. Your job is never purpose to make you happy and content. When we look there for our identity, we are placing on these things burdens that they were never intended to bear. And when you look for your identity and your worth in your daily vocation, you will never be satisfied. But when you begin to understand that if you're a Christian, your identity is now rooted in the saving and transforming call of the redeeming grace of the gospel, well, then you'll begin to see that success or failure at work, frustration and inadequacies in those things simply cannot touch who you are. Isn't that wonderful to know? Your identity is not derived from your performance on your earthly vocation. Now, your monetary standing may be if you get fired for not doing your job. But that's another thing altogether. Rather, for the believer, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Amen? Your security is elsewhere. Your identity is elsewhere in him. That's where your identity is. It's a vertical call of God through the gospel for which he made you new. And recognize that your, your real true identity is rooted there and you'll begin to find freedom that your daily demands of more that our culture keeps throwing at us, always looking for the next big thing, convinced, that by, convinced by our culture that we can't really compete without academic success or employment advancement, or accumulated wealth, when we realize that all of that stuff is relatively meaningless compared to our call to God in Christ Jesus, we are free. That's wonderful. And so he says, you are called. And then he says this. He says, therefore... Be content, because God has called us to a vocation, a lot in life, and given you everything to glorify him, the natural result is he wants you to be content. Look at verse number 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, okay? This is my rule in all the churches. So we are to, to be content. That Paul repeats it three times. I went over it, but I'll go over it again. Verse number 17, we see it there. Verse number 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse number 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain con uh, with God. What do you think Paul's trying to tell us? Are you beginning to understand? Contentment. Look, when I was in college, I had to work for everything I got. For my mediocre grades, I had to work really hard. Finals week was always terrible for me. Horrible. 
I studied so much for mediocre grades and finals. I remember I had a roommate, his name is Tim. One week I'm studying for finals and Tim walks in with a basketball in his hand. Now Tim, just to let you know, was a 19-year-old third-year physics major, okay? Basketball in his hand, physics major, and he said, what are you doing? I'm thinking, what kind of a question is that? I said, I'm studying for finals, and he said, ah, maybe I should do that. And I don't remember if he picked up like a calculus four or some kind of advanced physics textbook, but I watched him out of the corner of my eye start flipping through that book, the whole textbook. In about 15 minutes he was in, he said, well, I'm going to go play some more basketball. And when he walked out of that room, I was really, really discontent. (laughs) You know what? Since then, I have learned in Christ to be content with how he made me. I'm thankful for Tim. Tim's a wonderful friend. He was in my wedding. We still communicate with one another. Um, But I don't think about that kind of stuff anymore because I know that God has made me who I am and my true identity is not in intelligence, not in my job, not in um, any of that stuff, but in Jesus Christ. And that's what God calls us to do. What Paul is saying, dear believer, is to, if I can use this common phrase, bloom where you were planted, right? He gives two illustrations to the Corinthians how they can bloom where they are planted, The first one is circumcision. These are affecting the the Corinthians. They were attempting to change their earthly lot because they were discontent. In verses 18 and 19, uh, these verses recount uh, circumcision as one of the problems that people were having, their, their areas of discontent. Circumcision, by the way, for the Jew was a great source of pride. If you were a Jewish person in that day, living in Judea around Jerusalem, living up in Galilee, and even in some of the other areas like the Decapolis or, or uh, Samaria, which is all in Israel proper today, if you were a Jewish person living there, your circumcision was a great source of pride. But for Jews living outside of there, in the Greco-Roman world, the culture they lived, that they lived in Rome, that they lived in Corinth, that they lived in Galatia, right? And all these other cities where the the culture of the day was not Jewish, then um, it was not looked upon as being enlightened. As a matter of fact, the culture of that day looked at circumcision as a barbaric practice. And so if, if they recognized that you were in the way that they did, uh, not trying to be crass, was in the public baths, if they realized that you were, you could be an object of ridicule and scorn. And so some of the Corinthian Jews were trying to hide their Jewishness. There was a historical record says that there were Jews who underwent surgery, surgical procedures to try to um, hide the marks of circumcision so that they didn't appear to be Jewish. And some of the Corinthian Christians must have um, also tried to uh, um, perform that. Verse number 18 says this, though. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. And just like at Galatia, there were some in the church at Corinth, obviously, who were going 
who thought, just like in Galatia, if you're going to follow Jesus, what do you have to do? You have to be circumcised because you have to become more like Christ, and Christ was circumcised. And that, that was one of the problems of Galatia. And so they were trying to become more Jewish. And so Paul said to them, um, was anyone called while uncircumcised? Then he should not try to become circumcised. Why? Look at verse number 19. This is why. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but what? The keeping of the commandments of God. And there. He could be talking about the Ten Commandments, but he's most definitely talking about the great commandment of Jesus Christ, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said these two hang all the law and the prophets. And that's most likely what he's talking about. So you, you look at the Corinthians and you think, how silly is that, right? But we're so easily driven by externals too, aren't we? We focus far too much on making our lifestyles correspond to the expectations of our chosen social group. And we can be driven by those things. And Paul is saying here that externals like that are not really what's count, what counts. If you're called to a new life in Jesus Christ through the gospel, then what really counts is living out that new life and the new identity that God has given you and that pleases him they were in danger of rooting their identity and their worth in earthly vocations and their earthly lot and not in the heavenly call of God that really changes us forever what really matters is a new creation what really matters is joyfully keeping the commandments of God now there was a second situation I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this because this is important and the second situation had to do with slavery slavery now if you have a current ESV, um, that I was a bit surprised. I have an ESV study Bible at home, which was the 2001 edition, and it, it's different than the, this is the the what we saw on the screen. This is a 2016 um, final edition of the ESV. It's not going to change after this. And in the 2001 edition, the word doulos is translated slave, and that's what it means. And in the 2016 edition, they, they said a bond servant. Now, fortunately, I, I looked at all, most of the other translations, modern translations, use the word slave in this passage. But that's what that word is. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire, which mu was much different than the idea of slavery that we have today. You know, our idea of slavery is this race-based slavery that was a blight on our personal his, our, our national history, was it not? It was a blight. Let's say it no other way. It's a shame that it went on, race-based slavery. But in Rome, in the Roman Empire, slavery was so commonplace that its existence as an institution, the institution of slavery, was never questioned. It was never questioned. Slaves may have resented their bondage, but given the chance, slaves acquired slaves of their own. So slaves could have slaves, and those slaves could have slaves. When they were freed, when they become a freedman, 
when they were freed, they just moved up one notch on the social ladder. That's all they did. They were now freedmen, and they themselves became masters. Almost no one, slaves included, thought to organize society any differently. That was just the natural organization of the society. Now, we as Westerners have a hard time wrapping our mind around that, don't we? That was just normal for them, and we've got to understand, put yourself in this situation as we go back into the Bible. And I'll tell you why I'm doing this and laboring this in just a moment. Estimates are that one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. About another third of them were freed men. They were slaves but had become free. So two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire, by most estimates, had experienced some sort of slavery. And they found themselves in many different situations. The worst situation that you could be involved in would be to be a rustic slave or a rural slave because those kind of people were the ones who were in the mines. You better hope that you weren't bought to become a slave in the mine. Your life expectancy was very low. Or to be on the farms. The mines and the farms, those are the two hardest forms of slavery. But then there were the urban slaves. And urban slaves could have it much better. Um, They were sometimes highly educated doctors, lawyers, teachers, shopkeepers in other professions. Um, Household slaves received greater honor because they worked more closely with their master. Many times household slaves were the teachers and the caretakers of the children of the house. Uh, They managed the household. Many times they administered it. Now think of it with me for just a minute. Jesus used parables. Remember the the parable of the stewards, the the talents and the minus and all those different parables? Those were slaves. And he was comparing Christians to slaves there. They were administrators of the estate, but they were slaves as as well. Um, Household slaves received that greater honor. But no matter what, To be a slave was to be somebody else's possession. They were stripped of their former identity if they were not born a slave. Um, When they became slaves, if they were born slaves, that was their identity. Masters exercised unlimited power over their slaves. There was no limit to what they could do to their slaves. Think any, the most deviant kind of behavior. I'm not going to spelled out in this audience of the children here, but deviant forms of behavior, if they were just property meant to satisfy their pleasures, then you can imagine what went on with slaves, and that was very commonplace. Aristotle said this, now Aristotle lived hundreds of years before the time of Paul, but he said this, and this carried on through the time of Paul. A slave is a human being who, is, who was completely considered somebody else's property, and somebody, someone who belonged completely to another person. And so someone's, one's experience as a slave ultimately depended upon the demands and the goodness of the master. So slaves of an abusive and temperamental owner, they endured a life of slavery, or I'm sorry, a life of misery. But if a slave had a reasonable uh, even gracious master, the situation could be far better. 
No matter what, though, all slaves had one thing in common. And that is they all had an owner. And each slave, their lives were determined by the character of the owner. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. I want to draw your attention to something else that perplexes a lot of Christians in the 21st century. Look at verse number 21. Were you called while a slave? It should not concern you. How does that rub with 21st century sensibilities? That doesn't sound right, does it? Paul wasn't outraged by the institution of slavery. Of course, he wasn't opposed to somebody gaining their freedom, right? That's what he said. If you have the opportunity to get your freedom, go and get it. But if you're a slave, don't let it concern you. What's going on here? Well, this is odd to our modern personal autonomy-driven sensibilities. How can Paul be so cavalier? Why doesn't he tell them to, to rise up and fight against their slavery? It's because the truth of their lives was far more profound than their current slavery. Listen, this, this is such a blessing. The Christians in the church at Corinth who were slaves had been delivered from a far more insidious form of slavery. The Christian slave has been delivered from slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to the law, slavery to the devil, and slavery to the world. So while he was not free in an earthly sense, he was free in a heavenly sense. So Paul said this, for he who was called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he, was, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. And so what we have going on here is that slavery is an earthly picture of what sin does to us. These Corinthian slaves, they were free in Christ. As a matter of fact, even the people who experienced the lowest stations in life in the Greco-Roman Empire were kings in the kingdom of God. Modern day, what does that mean for us? I think probably the lowest of the low people in society would be the outcasts in Hindu society. You know what I'm talking about? They're the very lowest. They're not even in the caste. They're outcasts. They're they're non-human beings. And those believers who are outcasts in Hindu society that no one cares about, they don't even view them as a person, those people are kings in the kingdom of God. The other irony that Paul mentions is that even freedmen And women in Roman culture were slaves to sin, death, and the law, unless they are set free from these tyrants by Jesus Christ. Having been set free from sin, the law, and death, the free man or woman is likewise a bondservant or a slave of Christ. Now, Scripture tells us, and this is what I want to go for us, application for us, scripturally, spiritual application. Scripture tells us that we spend our lives in slavery. Look at this. But thank God, 
that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. Having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So we jump from one form of slavery to another form of slavery. Slavery, sin, death, the world, the devil, to slavery, to righteousness. It's a picture that has gone all the way through Scripture. Our salvation is, is all slave language. You use the term redemption, that's slave language. Listen to Moses, what he said to, Le- to the Israelites in Leviticus 25. Uh, for Israelites are my slaves. This is the Lord speaking. For the Israelites are my slaves. They are my slaves that I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt because they became his slaves. We were also redeemed. We were bought with a price, and therefore our body is not our own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean? It means that before salvation, we were slaves to that hard taskmaster called sin, where the more you do for your sin, the harder your bondage becomes. Am I right? Addicts know that. Former addicts know that. The more you give yourself to whatever sin it is, the more that sin enslaves you and holds you down and makes your life miserable. But the moment you become a child of Christ, you now have become a slave of righteousness. You're a slave of Christ, and now you serve a new master whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, right? You know what Jesus said? You are now slaves to that new master, just like the slaves. And I, this is the point I want to make. Remember when I said that in the Roman Empire, the, your experience of slavery completely depended upon your master. It is same as true in your spiritual life. Your experience of the spiritual life all depends upon which master you determine you're going to serve. Because if you're going to serve Jesus Christ, your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and the slavery feels like freedom. But if you're going to serve your sin, you're going to be in bondage to that sin. There's going to be misery to that sin. And we've all experienced it, haven't we? We all have. One more thing. Some might be saying this. Some of you might be thinking this. Yes, Jared, but what about all those other pictures in the Bible? You know what I'm talking about? Because we don't dwell, to, to, to the best of my knowledge, there's not been a contemporary worship song come out. Maybe you can correct me on this, somebody, that has said that we are now slaves of God. Is there any on, on Caleb that you've ever heard like that? No. What are the songs that we hear on Caleb? In the songs that we like to sing, well, we're friends of God. I am a friend of God, right? Um, we're sons of God. We're brothers to Jesus Christ, rulers with him. We're the bride of Christ. These are all biblical pictures. So what about all those other biblical pictures? And the answer is very simple, that one analogy can't cover all the dimensions of our Christian life. It's like a diamond. It's a facet. And so you have to have all these different pictures to get a complete number, multifaceted picture of who we are in Jesus Christ. And one of them is 
that we are a slave. Now, Paul um, repeats that same truth that we, that we see on the screen in our passage today. He said, you were bought with a price. Now, he says, do not become slaves of men. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, don't let the opinions of men dominate your thinking on this point. They insist wrongly that social standing is what matters most. And I'm telling you that that's not true. Your identity in Jesus Christ is what matters most. Now, that is a battle that many of us face day after day after day, isn't it? Okay, I see some people shaking their heads. It's, It's true. We live in this world. We have to fight that identity every single day of our life. Your social standing is what matters most, says the culture. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian, but. And then there are all the pressures of life that call us and have claims upon us that drive us to seek and live up to expectations of others or our particular social sphere. And and Paul is saying that there is freedom from the oppression of that in Jesus Christ. When you are free... In Jesus Christ, you have the freedom to drive a 20-year-old rust bucket truck and not worry about it. That's right. Thank you. Somebody's on the same plane as me on that. People keep asking me, when are you going to get a new truck? What's wrong with that one? It's kind of like me. It's not pretty, but it works. So don't amen that. Your identity, your significance, your worth is not found in anything in this world. It's all found in him. Not, your soul, not in your social standing, but in Jesus Christ. You belong to him. You live for him. Don't let the opinions of others dictate, the dictates of cultures be your master. Let Jesus Christ reign in your heart, and he's the master of your life. I'm going to hit one thing real fast and then uh, finish up. There's a movement in Christianity that many people, it's kind of tagged this way. It's called the hypergrace movement. Are you familiar with that? Hypergrace, basically, uh, some of the things that hypergrace says is that we are saved by grace and that's primary. So any command of scripture, any kind of personal rule, any kind of limitation that we place on ourselves is legalism and not grace. But the biblical imagery clearly teaches us that we are now slaves to Jesus Christ. And just like the slaves of the Roman Empire, our one objective, and don't miss this, our one objective is to please our master in everything through our loyal obedience to him. So when you find yourself wishing that you had somebody else's calling, we've all done it, haven't we? From time to time. Wishing that we had somebody else's calling and not our own. When a restless sense of not knowing who you are undermines your ability to settle down. When you find it hard to bloom where you're planted, it might be that you are confusing your two calls. You've been looking for true significance in the call of God to an earthly vocation when all the time you should have been looking for your true significance in the calling of God in your union with Jesus Christ. Look there, Paul is saying, 
Look there, your restless heart will always be restless until it finds its rest. Um, Augustine of Hippo, Augustine, most people pronounce it, said this. He said, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in thee. Restless hearts, you will always be restless until you find your rest in Jesus Christ. Count, come to me, he said. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Contentment at last to bloom where we are planted because who we really are is not a function of what we do, but who God has made us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this profound truth. Culture is loud. It's insistent. It never stops. It's pull to cause us to find our value in things that are not Jesus Christ. We thank you for this wonderful passage. I pray that we will find our contentment in Jesus, seek to find it in him and not in anything else. We will seek to obey him, realizing that we are redeemed to serve him and obey him with all our heart. In Christ's name, amen.